0: So yes, a new series based in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it's probably the first in an occasional series that we will um, do over the next months, years maybe, um, looking at Paul's letters, which I've entitled Letters from Then for Now. So why that title? And indeed, by the way, why did we just do what we did? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. Well, As we explore these books, we want to first of all acknowledge um, sort of a simple fact, but one that we don't always think about explicitly, that originally they weren't written to us. I don't think that Paul sat down and thought, well, I'm gonna write a letter now to my friends in Philippi, oh, not forgetting the people in Marlow in 2022. It was written a very long time ago, first of all, not in English, certainly not in King James English, not in English at all, written in Greek. It was written by someone from a different culture to ours, with a different worldview to ours. And it was written to people in a different culture to ours, with a different worldview to ours. And so sometimes that means that we have to do a little bit of work to uncover all the richness of what is actually being said. And remember as well, they weren't written, even though we've got them in this, well, I was going to say bound book, but looking around, not a lot of people have got a bound book. Most people have got it on devices, but they weren't written down kind of with that in mind. They weren't written as theological treatises and essays. They were actual letters written to actual people, and they deal with, with those people that the writer knew and it deals with actual issues that were going on with them at the time and and indeed the people who received the letter probably wouldn't have read it anyway it would have been read out to them so we wanted you to experience it a bit like the original people would have done so. We often talk about the original readers but actually it was the original, I think the correct word is auditors, the people who heard it. And I hope that was quite powerful and I hope different bits leapt out to you as we did that. But also it brings us to the second part of the title because even though that is all true Nevertheless, they are letters we believe, not just for them, but also for us for now. And with the help of the Holy Spirit of God, we can hear God's voice speaking to us in our situations through the words. Sometimes, quite simply, because even though it was a long time ago and a different culture and all the rest of it, Human beings are human beings, and things that are going on with them often are things that might be going on with us. But sometimes it, it even goes beyond that. They can speak into our contemporary, 21st century lives. There's a guy called Nijay Gupta who's written a very helpful, quite short commentary on Philippians. And um, full disclosure, I, I did lean on him quite heavily in preparing um, the the outline for this series and and he says this, I think it's a really helpful quote, Paul did not just want to give wise counsel for living a fulfilled life. He didn't just want to solve social problems in a community. He didn't just want to manage, curtail or promote certain behaviours. His overarching goal was for his readers slash auditors to faithfully, joyfully and freely embrace the fullness of the gospel. And the fact that these situational letters became part of the Bible and passed on for many generations means that his theological messages have relevance for all believers in all places, in all eras, including us. So, today... And for the next nine weeks, we are going to explore the letter to the Philippians. And we're going to do it in some depth and um, yeah, maybe in some different ways. And so this morning, all I want to do in the uh, time that remains is to introduce that by giving a general introduction to the letter. And you will be amazed to know that I'm going to do that in three sections. Firstly, I want to consider who wrote the letter. Where's it coming from in terms of the writer? What was their worldview and background? And helpfully, as with all letters written in this period of time, we don't have to wait till the end to find that out. They declared it up front. We kind of put it love from at the end. And so if you don't know, recognize the handwriting or it's typed, you have to look at the back to see who it's from, but... No, they were much more helpful. I think it's quite a good habit, really. And uh, they put it up front. And in this case, we are told that it's from Paul and also Timothy. Um, I'm not going to dwell on Timothy, uh, other than to say he was kind of, at this time, Paul's right-hand person, son in the Lord, and whoever's dealing with this chapter and other bits of it might want to go into that a bit more. But I'm going to concentrate on Paul today. So that's who it's from. Secondly, who is it to? Well, it is important to know a bit about the original audience in order that we can understand what's being said and why is the letter being written to them in the first place. And finally, I just want to look at a little bit of the content in terms of the Big themes of the letter. And there are some big themes. There are some things that Paul returns to again and again. Now, I'm obviously not going to look at those in detail. Heave a sigh of relief all those who are speaking in the weeks to follow. Um, I will leave that to the wonderful people picking this up over the next few weeks. Firstly, I think next week, Jill. But what's the big story? What has prompted Paul to write this, as Phil has said earlier in the introduction, whilst he's sitting imprisoned in some way, and he makes that clear in the letter, that that's his situation. Unlike us, it's probably not just to say hi and send a smiley emoji face. There was rather more to it than that. So we're going to look at those three things. So first of all, the writer. Paul. Now, it's the Apostle Paul, I should point out. And I do have a reason, a particular reason, for just making that clear. Although looking around, probably all of you were going to assume that. But here's my reason. Many, many years ago, when Lina and I spent a year helping to lead a church that Paul here, Ratton, was also a leader in, um, I once conducted a whole Bible study with a group of previously very unchurched young people where I referenced Paul on many occasions, and it was only at the end of the evening from a question that someone asked that I realized that at least some of them had assumed I'd been talking about Mr. Ratton saying certain things, not the Apostle Paul. So they, they held you in high regard, Paul. There we go. But Yeah. <laughs> So I do want to just make it clear. And there is a serious point to it, actually. I wanted to tell the story, but I thought I'd shoehorn in a serious point. You know, we can make all sorts of assumptions when we're reading Scripture and talking about Scripture. And we can assume that everyone's reading it in the same way and understanding the same things by what we say and think. And uh, let's be aware of that. And um, yeah, we... There might be some degree of common understanding here, but I suspect, I know from experience, that if you were to then place that same passage of scripture in a completely different culture, um, they might be drawing different things from it. So, who is this guy? Well, he's the Apostle Paul. I I, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, most of you know this, but let's just make it explicit. He was born in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He was part of the Jewish diaspora, you know, those who had gone out into the nations some by choice, some not, spread around the Roman Empire. He was originally named, and when I was typing these notes, I, I, I almost typed christened. Anyway, um, he was originally named Saul, and that was naming him after a previous king of Israel from the same tribe that Saul was, our Saul, Paul was part of. And from Paul's own words, here and in other places, we, we learned that he had what, what we would call, I guess, in good old British culture, a good family background. In the letter, he tells his readers that even though he was born outside of Israel's borders in Cilicia, he is from pure Jewish stock. I thought Scott brought that out really well in his reading. Hebrew of Hebrews, it says in many translations, which scholars have kind of dwelt on. What does he actually mean by that? But probably it means that You know, his tribe, Benjamin, was one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. You know, he could trace his heritage back. He had a lineage. You know, at at the moment in the nation, we're kind of dwelling a little bit on who's related to who going back in the royal family. And we have Oksana, our Ukrainian guest, staying with us at the moment. Who's asking us all sorts of questions about the lineage of the royal family that, Lina and I haven't got a clue. <laughs> we have to keep Googling to um, to find out. And it turns out she knows more than we do, actually, quite a lot of the time. But Paul was kind of harking back to that, really. He, he's kind of saying, look, I, you know, you can trace my family back. We are pure Jewish stock, if you want to think about that. He had a good education. In um, Acts 22... He talks about that, and I guess the modern-day equivalent would be like him saying, look, I'm, I'm Oxbridge. I'm an Oxbridge guy here. Because he talks about how he studied in Jerusalem. Even though he was born outside of Israel, he, went to, he grew up, some of his time at least, in Jerusalem, and he studied in Jerusalem under one of the foremost teachers of his time, a guy called Gamaliel. And all of that led to him becoming extremely zealous in his adherence and pursuance of his Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee, a staunch upholder of every smallest detail in both the law of Moses and all the other things that had got added to that original law over the centuries as the rabbis sought to kind of contextualize and and kind of dot every I and cross every T for every situation so that there was no leeway in the law. And all of that was Paul's background. But, as we just heard as the letter was read, he was prepared to lay all of that aside. And I've dwelt on his background in education and all of that stuff for a bit of time just to reinforce the power of the fact that he was prepared to ditch all of that. As most of us here know, Saul the Pharisee had an amazing converting encounter with the person of Jesus, and it turned his life upside down. It turned all of that upside down, all of his background upside down, so that Saul the Pharisee becomes Paul, founder of Christian churches in the Gentile world. Unbelievable. Something of a turnaround. Yeah, in this letter, when talking about some of the things he would have considered credentials in the past, he says this. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as, it's an American translation, garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And I I do want to just dwell on this. Paul isn't mincing his words here, as some of you will know. He's not even very polite in his language, When he says his previous credentials are like garbage, as it says in this translation, or rubbish, the Greek word is skubalon, which meant dung. Yes, I did say dung, excrement or whatever other word you might want to substitute at that point. Very powerful, not the sort of thing you expect to hear being read out in church in a gathering and that's the word that Paul used and he said it to make a point that all of this other stuff that in worldly terms, earthly terms his contemporary cultural terms he could have relied on and said this is what gives me status and this is where I find my identity he says all of that is like dung Compared to knowing Jesus. And that led, that attitude in Paul, that turnaround in Paul led to certain things. It means that he resisted Judaizers very strongly. Now, Judaizers were a sort of a faction that grew up in the early church, in the Jewish early church, that said, yeah, okay, yeah, obviously we're following Jesus. And I guess it's all right that this gospel is being extended to all of these others, the Gentile world. But it's only okay if they then, as well as following Jesus, start following Jewish law as well. And for the men, practically getting circumcised. And Paul resists this very strongly. He's got quite strong words in this letter. But for the really strong words, you need to go to the book in Galatians. Some of you are ahead of me. Where he says, okay, all those who are insisting that the Gentile believers should be circumcised, why don't they go the whole way and castrate themselves? I'm sorry, that's not very polite, but it's what Paul says, blame him. And um, perhaps we'll look at that in more detail uh, when we do that letter. very strong. He found himself reaching out to Gentiles and starting churches with them. He was a radical. He really was. Now, I know that because of how we read some of the things he says in other places and and we pass it through our 21st century filter he can sometimes come over as sounding a bit of a bigot or a misogynist. And I've heard that, those words being used of Paul. It's not really fair. First of all, let's not forget how far he came from where he started, which I've just described. And where he started... The Pharisees would have had a prayer, the men would have prayed every day, thanking God they were neither a Gentile nor a woman. So we came a long way from that. And even some of the passages we might point to, for example, Ephesians 5 to 6, which deals with... uh, It's called the Household Codes. It it talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. It talks about the relationships between parents and children. It talks about the relationships between slaves and masters. And some of it sounds uncomfortable to us, maybe. But you've got to understand that that structure he uses there, actually he didn't make up. It was a structure that was common in his culture in culture of the ancient world started with Greeks I think and actually he turns what they would have said on its head and puts everyone on a level playing field in serving Christ you need to read that to make sense of that we haven't got time to explore it now I only reference it to say he really was subverting a lot of cultural norms and we can look at that in more detail when we do Ephesians and let's not always judge his words against no, sorry, let's always judge his words against his practice. So he did very clearly, although some scholars have tried to cover it up, um, have women in leadership in his churches. And we'll look at that in a moment. So that's Paul. little bit of a flavor of the person who wrote this letter. How about his audience? Well... His audience was the people in this city of Philippi, and if you were here when I introduced the series on Thessalonians, um, then some of this will be familiar. And if you weren't, you can always go and look at it um, on the website and find the talk, because I'm not going to say too much about it now. Philippi was a bit like Thessaloniki. Uh, It was a prominent city in the Roman Empire. It was on a major trade route. People there could claim Roman citizenship, which was a very big deal to them. Very important. Part of their identity as residents of this city was their Roman citizenship. And they adopted those cultural norms, such as in Roman culture, the importance of honor and position, success, Philippi was actually the first place that Paul came to when he had that call, that vision to, to come over to Macedonia. He saw that vision of the man of Macedonia, read it in Acts 16, saying, Come over here, which occurred at the end of a period of time when it seems to me, reading that passage in Acts 16, he was wandering around, not knowing actually quite where he should be going and searching for guidance. It was somewhere we know he visited at least twice, as recorded in Acts 16 and 20, but in Acts 20, there's implicitly that he could have visited it twice, not once, and then scholars say that in the letter he says he wants to come back, so maybe he came back another time. So he maybe went there four times. He knew these people. It was a place of connection for Paul. The church, if we read about in Acts 16, Paul's missionary journey there, the foundation of the church. um, It was a church born in challenges to culture and challenges to people's income. Need to read the story, but Paul's mission caused a bit of a stir. He disrupted cultural issues. He spoiled a corrupt business. People don't like it when those things are challenged. The first meetings, it seems, took place in the home of a businesswoman, Lydia. And by the way, in the New Testament, when it talks about and the church that meets in such and such a person's house, it normally means they led that house church. In the letter, they are commended for their generosity, which is interesting, given... As I said, the roots where Paul's mission challenged corrupt business, but then the church ends up being known for its generosity. And it was a church that had relational challenges. We um, read about that very explicitly um, in... uh, I've lost some notes, never mind... We read about that very explicitly uh, at the end of the letter. We heard that in the last part that Anthony was reading just now, where two people are particularly singled out. I'll leave that to the person covering that section. But earlier on, it also talks about treating each other well, honouring each other, putting others before yourselves. And, you know, you kind of tend to say those things if those things are actually a bit of a problem. So it was not the perfect church It was a very ordinary church. It was just like us. Yeah? And finally, so here are some of the main themes Paul challenges his hearers, his readers as to where they are finding their confidence. You people who have so much reason, maybe, to have confidence in your background and in your circumstances and in your city that you live in, is that where you're going to put your confidence? He challenges their views on success and status and honor. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to have status? He challenges their lifestyle. How are you living? What impact is the gospel actually having on the way you live? And he also encourages them in terms of where they can find peace. Peace of mind. Peace of heart, peace of spirit. And so, in this series, as well as looking at what Paul said to Philippi, we want to ask the question, what's he saying to us in Marlow? Who, actually, I hope you will have recognized a whole lot of similarities between the circumstances of the church of Philippi and the circumstances of the church in Marlow. Where are we putting our confidence? How do we perceive success? What impact is the gospel having on our lives, really? And at a time when mental health is such an issue for so many, and maybe so many of us, Where can we find peace? So very quickly, just to finish, this is the structure, just so you know where we're headed over the next few weeks, or next nine weeks, following weeks. We are going to go through, we, we, we purposely wanted to read the letter without chapters and verses because it never had those in the first place. But we are, for the sake of it just being easier to chop it up this way, we are going to do it chapter by chapter. But we're going to go through chapter by chapter and we will explore those themes. But I've put a plus afterwards because the people doing those weeks may well find other things as well they want to dwell on. But we're going to give two weeks to each chapter. The first week, we are going to look more at what Paul said to Philippi. And what does that say to us? We will draw the practical from it. But the second week for each chapter, we're going to explore that more. We're going to explore more what the chapter might say, what the letter to us might say. And then the final week, and I'll be perfectly honest, we don't know exactly how we're going to do this yet. We want to actually... Maybe even try and create that letter. What is the letter to Marlowe? Marlowians, is that right? When I googled Marlowians, it was people who studied the works of Marlowe, the playwright. But, <laughs> but we really do want to anchor this down into has it impact us? And if Paul was sitting there in his jail cell thinking, "What does the church in Marlowe need to hear about these things? What would he say? What examples would he use? What issues would he touch on? Let's just be quiet for a moment. Father, I thank you for your word that it is timeless, that your words speak to us, not just to the original audience. Thank you, even as the letter was read out, I believe different words, sentences, sections will have leapt out to us, spoken to us afresh. as we consider again the impact that the gospel had on Paul's life. Father, we're challenged, I'm challenged. I do pray, Lord, that just even this morning, but also over these next few weeks, you would continue to both challenge and encourage us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.